0: And I'm going to read this morning from the book of John. Would you go ahead and stand with me, please? Our scripture is going to be on the screen. I'm reading from John chapter 12, verse 12 to verse 26. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel! And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who were also who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, "Sir, we wish to see Jesus." Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Peter went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered him, answered them, "The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated.
1: Thank you, Jill. Well, good morning to everyone. It's good to see all of you here. Also, good to have all of you who are tuning in via our live stream. My name is Mark, and I serve as as one of the pastors here. It's such a pleasure to have you with us as we are continuing our journey through the gospel of John. And I know it's hard to believe this. But we have been in this book for almost nine months now. Time flies when you're having fun. At least I'm having fun, okay? And I hope you are too. I hope you've been encouraged by this book. I hope your belief in Jesus has been strengthened by John's narrative because that's his express purpose in writing. That's why he said he wrote this gospel so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we might have life in his name. That's why John has written this carefully, crafted this artistic account of the words and the works of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, today we come to a pivotal passage in the narrative. There's 21 chapters in the book of John. Okay? The first 11 cover the first three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. Guess what the next 10 cover? One week. One week in Jesus' life that begins with Palm Sunday The the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and ends with Resurrection Sunday, the, the most important week in the history of the universe. Sometimes we call it Holy Week or Passion Week. It's the week when Jesus will lay down his life for you, for me, for the world. Well, today we start that week with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem where crowds of people are welcoming Jesus, hailing him as king of Israel. But I want to ask a question this morning as we start out. Have you ever wondered why this crowd is hailing Jesus as king, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet five short days later, will be yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Whoa, that's a big change. That's an about face. What happened here? Why did they go from jubilation and welcoming him to murderous shouts in just five short days? Why? Well, we're going to begin to discover the answer to that question today in our narrative And it's a very important discovery, and here's why. Because you and I are not that different than this fickle crowd. We have the same types of things in in our hearts that could lead to the same response to Jesus. And so it's important for us to discover and be keenly aware of why they abandoned Jesus so that we aren't tempted to do the same when life doesn't go our way or things don't go as planned. This is an important passage for us to unpack together today. And as we go along, if you're taking notes, here's our outline. We're going to discover Three profound observations, say this out loud with me, three profound observations and two probing questions. If you don't want to get convicted, just leave after the observations, okay? Um, Three profound observations, two probing questions, that'll be our outline. Let's pray before we dive in. God, reveal yourself to us in your word this morning, and Father, reveal us to ourselves as well. May we see in our hearts a danger there. And may we address it with your glory and your word. And may your spirit, in combination with your word, among the community of your people, as we process your word together, change us from the inside out as we contemplate the gospel and the glory that is to come. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, before we we jump into the first verse, I'd like to give you the context leading up to this episode in John's Gospel. We have guests here from Kansas, um, and they need to be caught up to speed. And of course, I know the rest of you perfectly remember where we've been. But I just want to give you the context before we, we jump in. Jesus has just kicked the hornet's nest of the religious establishment. How did he do it? Does anybody remember? He did a very spectacular, important miracle. What was it? Yes. He resurrected Lazarus from the dead. Now, here's a harder question, okay? Where did he do it? What's, what's the name of the town? Begins with a B, ends in ethany. Bethany. Bethany, yes. Perfect. He, he did this in Bethany, a bedroom community within easy walking distance of the big city of Jerusalem. He does a very public and spectacular miracle. And if you recall, this was the miracle that was the last straw for the religious establishment. Jesus kicked that hornet's nest and the hornets came. Okay, And they are saying, we've got to put an end to Jesus and basically said, and made plans to do so. So Jesus has a contract out on his life now. Okay, And what does he do? He shrewdly gets out of town. And he heads north to a town in the middle of nowhere on the, the border of Samaria called Ephraim. Nobody typically went to Ephraim they would, because that's on your way to Samaria and Jews don't go to Samaria. So he lays low in this you know, really tiny town. And while he's there, what's happening? Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, what's happening? Lazarus is happening remember? He's living. You know, he's probably going into the big city to buy groceries, and then people are seeing him there and going, oh my goodness, that's the guy that was dead. I smelled him. And, and then they're taking the two-mile trip back out to Bethany to, um, to see it for themselves. This is the guy. He's alive. Isn't this amazing? And so the, in the weeks building up to the Passover feast, anticipation is building, isn't it? Everyone in Jerusalem is wondering, is Jesus the Christ? Is this the Messiah? Is this the anointed one? I mean, look, he can raise people from the dead. He raised that guy. And we're seeing him. Yes, he must be the Messiah. He must be the king. He must be the anointed one. He must be the fulfillment of all his prophecies. He's the king of Israel. Do you think he's coming to the feast? When when do you think he'll come? Anticipation's building. And at the beginning of chapter 12 that Levi took us through last week, where do we find Jesus? Anybody remember? It starts with a B, ends in Ethany. He's back in Bethany. He's come back to the hornet's nest, okay? But what you need to know is that he didn't take the relatively short journey from Ephraim back down to Bethany to stay with his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus before the feast. No, we find out from reading the parallel accounts in the other gospels that Jesus actually took a 150-mile walk leading up to Passover feast. He must have gone north through Samaria because one of the other gospels says on his way to Jerusalem, he passed along the border of Galilee and Samaria. Well, the only border between Galilee and Samaria is up north. So he must have gone north out of Ephraim, joined the bands of travelers coming down from Galilee um, and uh, traveled with them along the border of Galilee and Samaria, going down to the Jordan River Valley to bypass Samaria like they often did. And as he's going along, he does two miracles on his way to Jerusalem. Remember, there's throngs of people coming with him, throngs of pilgrims going up for this pilgrim feast. And he does two miracles. One is he's approaching a town. He, he encounters 10 lepers, and they shout, have mercy on us. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't heal them on the spot. He just says, go show yourself to the priests. Where do they have to go to show themselves to the priests? Not rhetorical. Talk to me. Jerusalem, where the priests are. So they have to run south down the Jordan River Valley, hit Jericho, head up the the long dusty road through the wilderness, up into the mountains to Jerusalem to show themselves to the priests. And as they are going, the text tells us that they are healed. So they're, they're going along, maybe at a leisurely pace at first. Oh, this guy's telling us to go. I guess we'll try it, you know. And then their skin starts getting clear and they're going, oh my goodness, we're healed. Do you think they started? Just a slow pace after that? No, no, they probably picked up the pace. They're running ahead. They're telling everybody in these throngs of people going to, all these pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem, Jesus healed us. Jesus healed us. He's coming. And they're going up to Jerusalem to show themselves to the priest. So Jesus is 10 guys running ahead of him, probably telling everybody along the way what's happened, and everybody's getting excited. Jesus then makes his way south down the Jordan River Valley, and when he gets to Jericho, he does a second miracle. He heals a blind man named Bartimaeus. This likely happened on a Thursday. And then on Friday, before Palm Sunday, along with the crowds from Galilee traveling to the feast, Jesus takes the 18-mile, grueling uphill hike through the wilderness from Jericho to Jerusalem. But then he does something interesting. Instead of finishing the journey to Jerusalem, he takes a little left turn and he stops at the house of his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And that's where John picks up in the narrative in chapter 12 and what happens in that house. They throw a party for him. After all, not too about six weeks earlier, (laughs) Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. They throw a party for him. What does Mary do? Remember Levi's can of Coke, you know, the 12 ounces? Mary comes, anoints, Jesus' feet with that costly, costly ointment, wiping his dirty, dusty feet that had just traveled the long, dusty road from Jericho with her hair. And remember, the whole city of Jerusalem is asking the question, is he coming to the feast? Is he coming to the feast? The crowds traveling with Jesus could have answered that question, right? Yes, he's coming. We saw him heal lepers. We saw him heal a blind man down at Jericho. And is, well, is he coming tonight before sunset, before the Sabbath? Well, well no, no, he, he took a left turn back in Bethany. Well, will he come tomorrow? No, tomorrow's the Sabbath, and you can only walk half a mile on the Sabbath according to Jewish law. So Bethany's two miles away. He's not coming tomorrow. Well, will he come at sunset, after sunset on Saturday? Well, probably not. You don't travel at night, there's no street lights. What's the only logical answer? When's Jesus coming? Sunday morning. Sunday morning's when he come, he's coming. So let's pick up our text in verse 12. Verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. You understand that the, during the Passover feast, the population of Jerusalem would swell immensely. It'd go from about estimates... Um, we don't know quite how accurate these are, but uh, best estimates from historians is that Jer- Jerusalem in the first century had a population of about 70,000. But during these pilgrim feasts, particularly the Passover feast, the most important one, the population of, of um, Jerusalem would swell to close to 3 million people. So there's a large crowd there. And do you see how Jesus has perfectly set things up for his triumphal entry into Jerusalem? For 36 hours, he has the whole city buzzing about his arrival. Do you think he's coming? When is he coming? He's coming Sunday morning. Okay, well, let's go out to meet him. Let's go out to meet him. And the road from Bethany to Jerusalem that Sunday morning would have been more crowded than lower Broadway during the country music festival. This was jam-packed. Verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Have you ever wondered, why palm branches? Why palm branches? Why are they waving palm branches? I didn't even know their palms grew in the desert, desert. They do. Go visit. They've got palm trees in Israel. Okay, but why palm branches? You need to know that Palm Ranches had very special meaning to the Jewish people. They're a symbol of nationalism. You see, the Jewish people at this time had been subjugated to foreign powers and foreign oppressors for the past 500 years at this time. Except except for a short 80-year period in there where Judas Maccabee, you remember him? Judas Maccabee comes and he leads a charge to um, drive out Antiochus Epiphanes and restore the temple and all that. And for that short window of the Maccabees being in power, Israel had independence. And on their money, on the coins that they minted in that period, you know what they stamped? Palm branches. Palm branches. A symbol of nationalistic pride and independence. Independence. So by waving palm branches as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, what are they doing? They're showing nationalistic pride. They're beaming with it, giving Jesus a royal welcome, hailing him as the rightful king of Israel, the rightful person who should be in power, crying out, Hosanna. You know what that means? Lord, save us now. Hosanna, Lord, save us now. But what are they asking Jesus to save them from? Say it louder. Yeah. Rome. They want Jesus to overthrow the Roman oppressors. They want Jesus to set up an earthly kingdom. They want Jesus to rule and reign on the throne in Jerusalem, restore peace and prosperity to the people, and bring political freedom for the nation of Israel. Lord, save us now. Observation number one. First of three. Say this out loud with me, okay? Observation number one. The crowds wanted Jesus as a savior from their problems, not a savior from their sins. The crowd wanted Jesus as a savior from their problems, but not necessarily a savior from their sins. They were co-opting Jesus for their own agenda. Do you get it? Do you see it? They were co-opting Jesus for their own means, their own agenda, Not too much unlike the form of Christian nationalism that has come to prominence recently in our own country. Though I hesitate to call it Christian nationalism, I would prefer to call it politicized religion. Because I don't think Christ would want anything to do with it. After all, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of Jesus is much bigger than any human agenda. It's not of this world, my friends. It's over this world. Jesus did not come to cater to a political agenda, and this is why Jesus does something very unexpected in verse 14. Let's read it together. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written Fear not, daughter of Zion. That's a reference to the city of Jerusalem, daughter of Zion. If you're not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, wait a minute, Jesus. Time out. Time out. A donkey? Really? What are you doing here? Kings don't ride on adolescent donkeys. Donkeys are service animals. When you picture a king, what do you picture? Do you picture him riding on a donkey? No. What's the steed he's riding or she? What, what, What would a king ride? You know, a a fierce and beautiful and mighty stallion with rippling muscles and a flowing mane, right? That's what kings are supposed to ride. What's Jesus doing on a donkey? They were used as pack animals for grunt work, for bearing burdens. In the first century in Jerusalem, they were actually used to carry human waste and refuse out of the city. Kings... Don't ride on an ennoble beast like a donkey. No. What does any self-respecting king ride? A stallion. They ride in with a show of power. They crush their enemies underfoot. They pierce them through with their swords. They wear crowns of jewels on their heads. That's what kings are supposed to do. What's Jesus doing on a donkey? Even his disciples don't get it. Verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So, so what dawns on the disciples later, not here, but later, is like, oh, Zechariah wrote about this. Zechariah wrote about a prepubescent donkey and, and a king riding on it. This is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Zechariah 9.9, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. And the next verse in Zechariah is right here. Zechariah 9.10, it's not quoted by John, but the audience would have known it. It says this, and he shall speak peace to the nations, not just Israel to the nations. And his rule shall be from sea to the border of Samaria. No. (laughs) From sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of Galilee. No. (laughs) What does it say? From the river to the what? The ends of the earth. And so Jesus is indeed king of Israel. They got that part right. But what they miss here is that he's more than that. He's king over all nations. He's king over the world. And Jesus rode this young donkey to make a statement. He's even greater than they expected, but he also rode this donkey to shatter their expectations. Some of them, at least. He's a different kind of king than what they think he is. This king does not ride in with a show of power, but a demonstration of humility. This king will not crush his enemies, but will be crushed by his enemies. This king comes not to pierce, but to be pierced. This king won't wear a crown of jewels, but rather will wear a crown of thorns. This king will not sit on a throne yet, but will hang on a cross. We know from the other Gospels that as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, making this final trip to Jerusalem, perhaps even on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem, he turns and says to his disciples, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Which leads us to observation number two from our passage this morning. Read this out loud with me as well. Jesus rides a service animal because he is a servant king. Jesus rides a servant servant animal because he is a servant king. By riding this adolescent donkey, Jesus is giving a major clue to the masses that he's a different kind of king than what they're expecting. He's not here to cater to their short-sighted, self-serving political agenda. He's here on God the Father's agenda to sacrifice himself for the world, for the world. He's here to be the Savior of the nations. Not just Israel. Verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. That's the effect of the Lazarus miracle. Verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, You're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They kind of throw up their hands. They can't touch him now. He's too popular. The crowds are enamored with him now. They they have a contract out on his life. They want to kill him, but their hands are tied, aren't they? Jesus' popularity polls have gone through the roof. The crowds are loving him. They're hailing him as the king. They can't touch him right now. But you know, they shouldn't have been too concerned. Because Jesus is about to thin the crowd for them. Verse 20. Let's read on. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Hmm, interesting. Now these are Gentiles who have converted to Judaism and are here to celebrate the Passover feast. They're worshipers of God, but they're not ethnically Jewish. Verse 21. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So these Greeks want to see Jesus. We've we've come all this way to Jerusalem. We're we're here to celebrate the Passover, but what we really want is to see Jesus. Can we see Jesus, please? Now, at first glance, this looks like a fan club asking for a backstage pass, doesn't it? To meet a celebrity. But we, we... begin to understand that there's much more going on here than meets the eye because of how Jesus responds to this request. He doesn't say, yeah, come on over, bring your, bring your uh, Passover T-shirts and I'll sign them with my Sharpie. You know, J-C. Uh, no, JC. No, do, he doesn't do that. Here's how he responds, verse 23. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. Something about the requests from these Greeks, these Gentiles, to see him signals to him that it's time, it's time. The hour has come for him to be glorified, to be the savior of the world. Now, Now remember, we've seen this phrase over and over and over and over again through our narrative of John, except this is different. First time we saw it was way back in the first miracle. Remember that? Jesus' mother sees that there's a crisis with the wine in a wedding and says to Jesus, hey, can you take care of this? And Jesus says what? My hour has not yet come. You know, it's over and over again, but in chapter seven, verse 20 is another example. Verse 30, actually. No one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Chapter eight, verse 20. No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. We've heard this language before, but this is the first time that Jesus acknowledges the hour has come. It's time. It's time for him to fulfill his purpose. It's time for him to hang on the cross for the sins of the world. It's time for him to be crushed, to be pierced, to die, to be laid in a tomb. But it's also time to be victorious over death, to be resurrected back to life, to call all nations to himself, to be glorified. It's time. The hour has come. The Jews have given their hosannas, and now these Greeks, these nations are seeking him out, and it signals to him that the hour is here. It's time. The Father's timing is is coming together. It's time for him to be glorified. And the disciples likely heard him say that, glorified. They're like, sweet, yes, great. This is what we've been looking forward to. This is what we've been waiting for. This is why we're following you. Andrew, go find a throne. Philip, you call a press conference and announce his kingship. Peter, you're good with words. You write the acceptance speech. But Jesus says, no, no, not so fast, guys, not so fast. Hold on. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Wait a minute, Jesus. You're just talking about glory, and now you're talking about death. Talk about whiplash for the disciples. This doesn't make sense. But Jesus understands something that the disciples do not yet understand. He understands that in, that his dying is, well what is, um, is what will unleash life. And so he tells a, kind of a mini parable here and likens his life to a grain of wheat. That if he preserves it, keeping it dry and safe, it will be sterile, unproductive, and alone. But if he lays his life down, if he lets the seed fall into the ground, so to speak, and disintegrate and die, what's going to happen? It's going to reproduce, it's going to multiply, it's going to unleash even more life. It will be the first fruits of something bigger. As Jesus is saying here, this is my purpose. A a seed was made for one purpose, to die and unleash even more life. This is my purpose. I came to die, to give my life as a ransom for many, and through my death to reconcile all peoples, all nations to the Father, making peace through my blood shed on the cross. This is my hour. This is my glory. Verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus is saying if I were to love my life and keep it for myself, accepting the throne now, bypassing the cross, avoiding it, I'd lose everything. I'd be disobeying my Father, I would be disowning my purpose. All humanity would be lost. Yeah, we'd have a temporary political victory. But all humanity, the nations would be lost. There would ultimately be no glory in that. But if I hate my life and I'm willing to give it up, then I get it back in resurrection. I become the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. And there's hope in that and there's glory in that i will have obeyed my father fulfilled my purpose redeemed humanity and i will have glory forever jesus pathway to glory must first pass through gethsemane then golgotha then the grave observation number 3 everything that goes on to resurrection must pass through crucifixion. Say that out loud with me. Everything that goes on to resurrection must pass through crucifixion. And here's the convicting part. This is not only true for Jesus. This is the tough part. This is a hard part to swallow. This is not only true for Jesus, but also for anyone who claims to follow him. How do I know this? Look at what Jesus says next in verse 26. "If anyone serves me, he must, what? Follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Follow you where, Jesus. Follow you where? Self-sacrifice. Self-denial crucifixion. Honor and glory will come, but it's not yet. It's not yet. Death comes first. In order to follow Jesus, my friends, there's much in us that needs to die. Think about it. To follow somebody, are you holding on to your own agenda? No. You have to set it aside to follow the agenda of the person that you're following. You're taking on that agenda, not yours. Your agenda has to die. My pastor friend Philip Miller writes, if we are to embrace the eternal life that Jesus offers, we must learn to let go of the one that we now have. The spiritual dynamics of God are very consistent. Think about conversion. We have to die to our self-sufficiency that God might resurrect dependency and life in him. Think about forgiveness. We have to die to our bitterness that God might resurrect love and forgiveness in our hearts. Think about surrender. We have to die to our independence that God might raise us up to walk in childlike faith. Think about suffering. We have to die to our comfort in order that we might have the treasure of God's presence always. The more we try to hold on to life, the more it slips through our fingers. C.S. Lewis put it this way, aim at heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither. The crowds wanted Jesus as a savior from their problems, not a savior from their sins. Jesus rides a service animal because he is a servant king. Everything that goes on to resurrection must first pass through crucifixion. Those are our three observations. What's left? Now's the time to take a nap if you don't want to hear the hard part, okay? Now now there's the the two probing questions. Levi, a bad time to, or not Levi, Lee, bad time to leave. Okay, okay. (laughs) Two probing questions, two probing questions. This crowd on Palm Sunday had the appearance of belief in Jesus, didn't they? They had the appearance of belief. They're welcoming him. They were no doubt superficial fans of Jesus at the very least. But they were not self-sacrificial followers. How do we know? Well, because in five short days, that same crowd would be crying out, instead of Hosanna, crucify him! They turned on him. And likewise, there are many even today that say that they believe in Jesus. But here's our first probing question. When you say you believe in Jesus, what version of Jesus do you believe in? What version of Jesus do you believe in? Do you believe in the consumeristic version that promises to make your life easier and better, your best life now? Or do you believe in the biblical version of Jesus, the true version that calls you to a life of self-sacrifice, Your best life later. And here's a second and somewhat related probing question. Two, are you following Jesus or just using him? Are you following Jesus or just using him? Are you approaching Jesus as merely the solver of your problems or as the savior from your sins and as the Lord of your life? There's a difference, a big difference Are you approaching Jesus like some genie in a bottle that will somehow make your life better and if you rub the lamp just the right way with the right combination of church attendance and moral living, somehow your life will be better and go more smoothly for you like some kind of weird karma thing. You'll magically get your wishes granted. Are you like the crowds in our passage who were more interested in the kingdom than they were the king? They wanted freedom from their oppressors, economic prosperity. The Romans kicked out, and they embraced Jesus as a means to their ends. But when Jesus turned out to be a different king and did not follow their agenda, and he asked them to follow his, they abandoned him and hung him out to dry. What about you? Are you following Jesus or just using him? This is convicting, I know. Look at your prayers. What are you asking for? Are we asking, God, your kingdom come? Or are we asking, God, our will be done? There's a difference. My friends, Jesus did not come to cater to our self-centered whims, but rather to serve our greatest need. This is the good news. This is what motivates (laughs) the self-sacrifice. So hear this. He came to serve our greatest need. He didn't come to defeat Rome, but to conquer sin and death and Satan. He didn't come to establish political rule, but to be crowned king of our lives. He did not come to bring economic prosperity, but to provide for you and for me an eternal wealth an eternal spiritual wealth that no earthly economic downturn can erase. This is the good news. (laughs) And my friends, the Bible states that Jesus will come back, that Jesus will establish his kingdom on earth. And you better believe on that day, he won't be riding a donkey. What will he be riding? We see a picture of it in Revelation chapter 19 It'll look a lot more like that where he will come back on a bad action white war horse with eyes like flame of fire with a crown on his head with blood on his robe with a tattoo on his thigh that says king of kings and lord of lords with the armies of heaven behind him and a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations in judgment. It's a terrifying scene. But in his first coming, he came on a donkey. Why? This is the good news. So that we meet Him as Savior before we have to face Him as judge. Amen? That He could save us instead of condemn us. That He could die in our place on our behalf instead of us. So that when He does come back on His white war horse, we might meet Him not as His enemies who are guilty, but as His friends who have been fully forgiven. Amen. That's the good news. He came to be crowned, not with gold, but with thorns. He came not to crush his enemies, but to be crushed by his enemies. He came not to inherit his due, but to divest his rights for others. He came not to live forever, but to lay down his life so that you and I, who put our faith in him and in him alone for salvation, might live forever with him in resurrection. But the crowd wanted a kingdom without a cross. And when Jesus didn't live up to their expectations, they abandoned him. But before we're too hard on this first century crowd, remember what I said at the beginning, our hearts are not all that different. We have the same condition in our hearts as they had in theirs. We quickly become disoriented and discouraged when Jesus doesn't give us everything that we think we need or want right now. Don't we? We pray for healing and it doesn't come. We we ask for relief and he doesn't grant it. We pray for deliverance from our problems but we're still struggling. And here's the truth that we need to embrace from this passage. Not just here, but here. It makes all the difference. We can't expect a kingdom without a cross. We can't expect glory without sorrow. We can't expect resurrection without crucifixion. We can't expect our best life now. No. Our best life is yet to come, my friends. When our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ returns to make all things new, what a glorious day that will be. Golgotha is now. Glory is coming. Glory is coming. Wait for it. Wait for it. Believe, as John tells us. Believe. And keep on believing even when life doesn't make sense. Even when it doesn't turn out the way you thought it should. Even when your expectations are shattered. Jesus is king. Glory is coming. Glory is coming. Pray with me. Father, Thank you for your word. Father, it reveals to us so much about you, about Jesus, about your plan, but it also reveals to us so much about ourselves. And as we look into your word, we see a mirror that shows us our heart condition, that we're so easily distracted by earthly agendas, by building our kingdoms, by seeking our own righteousness and self-salvation strategies, looking for love in all the wrong places, wrapping our lives around insignificant things when we have the opportunity to point people through self-sacrificial living to what's coming, the kingdom of Jesus over all the world. Father, give us patience, give us grace to to wait patiently, that while we are waiting to step into ugly places and bring beauty, step into broken places and bring healing, step into injustice and bring justice working in our our jobs as unto you and not unto men, bringing about human flourishing so we can unfog the glass for people about what's coming when Jesus will come in his kingdom in its fullness. And we understand it's an already not yet thing. We understand that Jesus is king, but will be king over all and will wipe away every tear from every eye and make all things new and everything sad come untrue. May that day come soon, we pray. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.